Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I know what they're trying to do, and everybody's for the equality competition. That's not the issue, but the IHSAA already had that in place. I don't think you understand what the issue is, former Mayor Ballard of Indianapolis. And uh, let's dig in a little deeper. Why are you commenting on this subject? We needed to hear from the former mayor of Indianapolis of what he thought about House Bill 1041 and the override that should be taking place tomorrow. House Bill 1041, talking about uh, transgender athletes in, in, in high school sports. And the reason for this legislation is quite simple. Children cannot determine their own gender. Schools cannot be allowed to codify such decisions. And the IHSAA, the Indiana High School Athletic Association, has not been perfect on this subject. And they are not the final arbiter. Parents, taxpayers, citizens are. I don't know why that's so difficult. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, what's going on? On, uh, you know, I keep saying on Facebook, I'm so used to it. We're moving everything over to locals. Find it all at TonyKatz.com, T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z, TonyKatz.com. Pretty soon, everything is going to be in this new community where we have total control, and we're going to have free content, we're going to have subscriber content, and it's going to be it's going to be phantasmal, my people. It's going to be phantasmal. Mayor Ballard, Greg Ballard, I I was very surprised to hear his name. He's in town for the Indy 500. Which, uh, uh, by the way, can we discuss the speed, people? Holy McSpeed of the Indy 500. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. But he wants to comment on the idea of 1041 and says uh, that, the, that we should be having legislation to stop boys saying they're girls and participating in sports is unnecessary. Unfortunately, I think they're probably going to override the veto. I hope that they don't, but because this was an unnecessary bill. I love his thoughts on unnecessary, and he gave a little bit of that here. The IHSAA has been on top of this for years. There's no precipitating incident whatsoever. Uh, there seems to be a law that's made up. And then he followed up here. Passing a law, an unnecessary law, that's not what Republicans are supposed to do, who profess to be for limited government, which I am for all also. And I, I just don't understand why they're doing this. It's, uh, it's an interesting one to punch, one that I'd like to break down for you. Because uh, the former mayor misses greatly in his approach and forgets uh, the very concept of conservatism in wanting to conserve uh, certain values. I won't disagree that the idea of there ought to be a law is not a very conservative principle. But there ought to be a standard and boundaries and rules is very much a conservative principle. One that I stand behind. One that makes it clear to me why I'm a conservative. Standards matter. It's not that things don't change and don't morph, but they don't go by whim. They don't go by mob. They go over time. Over time is what is needed because that's how culture is built over time. And you may argue that's not fast enough, and I'll argue to you that's the point. 
The point is, you don't do anything with too much speed. You take your time. People get comfortable, and they build, and they go, and they grow. So when he talks about the IHSAA... The IHSAA has been on top of this for years. There's no precipitating incident whatsoever. Uh, There seems to be a law that's made up. I don't know what precipitating incident you want, although the IHSAA has said that they have granted at least one waiver before that allows someone to play in a sport that is not uh, of, of their gender. So there's a problem. Secondly, there was nothing that required an IHSAA to begin with. Wait a second. You could survive without an IHSAA. You couldn't, two schools couldn't figure out how to play each other in football? Come on. Of course they could. I would argue they had done it before an IHSAA. That there's nothing precipitating it, meaning there, there, you feel that there was no need for it. Well, that's a very interesting point of view. I would argue there are a lot of things happening nationwide that clearly show a need for it, including a level of wokeness in schools that is downright horrific, including these trending moves across the country that are flat out dangerous. It is obvious to anybody who is paying attention that there is a desire amongst far too many to indoctrinate kids into, into this uh, idea of, of being another gender, pushing them into it, cultivating it. It's not just me talking about it, and I'll get to that in a second. You're for limited government? Passing a law, an unnecessary law, that's not what Republicans are supposed to do, who profess to be for limited government, which I am for all, also. And I, I just don't understand why they're doing this. Because children can't decide their own gender and children have to be protected. Of course you understand why they're doing this. Unless you really don't, in which case nobody's had this conversation with you. In which case I wonder why you're now speaking about it to news outlets as if somehow you've got a totality of the knowledge. I must admit, I don't know why it is that Mayor Ballard is having this conversation. It bothers me just because of the oppressive nature of it. Because it's completely unnecessary. The oppressive nature comes from the other side, and this is where the divide is. And I must say again, I find it untenable. Is that the right word? Or I just find it blank and gross that someone would think that it's oppressive to tell a boy who says they're a girl, you can't play in girl sports. And yet it's fine to tell a girl she can't play in girl sports. That's messed up. That's the oppressive part. That's the part I oppose. Boy makes a decision, a choice for themselves. You tell me I'm not supposed to get involved? Okay, I don't get involved. But now that choice is supposed to impact a girl who just wants to play volleyball or swim or do track or whatever else. And she's just supposed to lay back and take it. That's Gross. That's the oppressive nature of it. What is Mayor Ballard talking about? I believe that he has never once thought of the other side of the conversation. He has never once asked himself, who else is oppressed here? And why does somebody's decision get to oppress these girls? Why are these girls supposed to just take punch after punch after punch to the face? And when they don't want to take it, they're called bigots. They're not bigots. 
They're young women, they're athletes, and they deserve some damn respect. I don't know why Mayor Ballard isn't giving it to them. I don't know why Governor Holcomb isn't giving it to them. But this is exactly why it needs to be overridden tomorrow. Some national organization says you should look at this. It's going to make you look good back at home. That's not the way to be governing. They should be governing what's the best thing to do for the state of Indiana in the long term. And this this is not it. Just as an uh, an overarching question, is Greg Ballard running for governor? Now, I, I thought Ballard had moved to the Carolinas. I thought he was retired and, and, and finished. Well, I don't know. Uh, I would argue that vetoing this legislation was not best for Indiana. Indiana speaking clearly and saying we protect kids is the best thing for Indiana. Indiana saying clearly that we protect girls in sports and all over the place is the best thing for Indiana. Indiana saying clearly we don't think you should be mean or rude or disrespectful to kids who are having questions and issues. I think that's absolutely positively right. But good Lord, is, Jim ba- is, is Greg Ballard absolutely wrong? It's the second time I've called him Jim. I don't know why I keep calling him Jim. But let me now share with you a little bit about Bill Maher, who started discussing something this weekend, something that you and I have been discussing for a year now. The trendiness of declaring oneself transgender and this idea that what we're seeing somehow is normal and not just indoctrination, when, of course, clearly it's indoctrination. And that, Greg Ballard, that, Eric Holcomb, is worth fighting. So let me share some of this with you. And you're going to be like, wait, this is Bill Maher? Yeah. Yeah, it is. We may disagree on a series of political things, but, man, the things we agree on. And it's okay to ask questions about something that's very new and involves children. The answer can't always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right, trump card, mic drop, end of discussion. Because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids. Because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Although common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones, there's going to be problems. We do know it hinders the development of bone density, which is kind of important if you like having a skeleton. They don't ever accept accept the science, the danger that we're doing to children and allowing children to engage in surgeries, the self-mutilation. This is not something to be proud of. This is not a society that's advancing. This is highly regressive, highly oppressive. Let Mayor Greg Ballard answer that one. Fertility and the ability to have an orgasm seem also to be affected. This isn't just a lifestyle decision. It's medical. Weighing trade-offs is not bigotry. Yet when a book questioning the sudden uptick in transitioning children was released, a trans lawyer with the ACLU named Chase Strangio tweeted, stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is 100% a hill I will die on. How very civil liberties of him. You've heard me talk about the valueless nature of the ACLU. 
because they don't value civil liberties. The book in question is Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters from Abigail Schreier, which I have mentioned here numerous times. It is about what's trendy. It is about girls doing this and claiming to be boys and boys doing this, claiming to be girls, because it gets them attention. There isn't just this wide swath of all of a sudden transgender kids. And Bill Maher does a very good job of explaining this. Chase, by the way, has just been named one of the grand marshals of this year's New York City Pride March, along with three other trans people and a lesbian. Huh. What's missing here? Oh, right, a gay man. <laughs> That's where we are now. Gay men aren't hip enough for the gay pride parade. <laughs> Compared to trans, gay is practically cis, and cis is practically Mormon. <laughs> And this is a phenomenon we need to take into account when we look at this issue. Yes, part of the rise in LGBT numbers is from people feeling free enough to tell it to a pollster, and that's all to the good. But some of it is, it's trendy. Penis equals man, okay, boomer. <laughs> Remember, the prime directive of every teen is anything to shock and challenge the squares who brought you up. It's why nobody gets a nose ring at 56. <clears throat> yes, you find yourself agreeing with Bill Maher. And you can't believe it. You can't believe how on point he is. Maybe it's because this has nothing to do with politics and has everything to do with rational thought. Maybe, just maybe, it's so easy to see that so much of this is indoctrination-based and trendy. And it's so amazing to watch the people who want to destroy you for questioning any part of it because this fetish is their desire. And it is a fetish. I'm not talking about kids who have confusion. I'm talking about adults who want to push them into it. The adults that very often these kids need to be protected from. And if you haven't noticed that with kids doing something for the likes is more important than their own genitals, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> Dr. Erica Anderson is a prominent 71-year-old clinical psychologist who is herself transgender and who now says, I think it's gone too far. The LA Times summarizes, she's come to believe that some children identifying as trans are falling under the influence of their peers and social media. If you attend a small dinner party of typically very liberal upper-income Angelinos, it is not uncommon to hear parents who each have a trans kid having a conversation about that. What are the odds of that happening in Youngstown, Ohio? If this spike in trans children is all natural, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. It's It's like that day we suddenly all needed bottled water all the time. <laughs> if we can't admit that in certain enclaves there is some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then this is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder.
And I don't think children should be used as cannon fodder. And this is why Greg Ballard is wrong. And this is why Eric Holcomb is wrong. And this is why the General Assembly should override the veto of House Bill 1041 and make it the law of the land or the law of Indiana. More and more people speaking openly and freely about the problems that we're seeing is better. The kids, they should be treated well and protected very often from themselves. I've got more. I'm Tony Katz. Starbucks is walking out of Russia. 130 locations in the country. It's less than 1% of its annual revenue, and it's going to pay the 2,000 Russians who work there uh, for six months. After 15 years. McDonald's pulling out, ExxonMobil pulling out, British American Tobacco pulling out. Now do China. Once you do China, it all gets better. It's a lot easier to pull out of a country that's only uh, accounts for, uh, you know, less than 1% of the annual revenue. They're all licensed locations, so, you know, they're going to they're gonna stay open in other ways. They're going to, you know, someone's going to run them just like they're going to run the McDonald's. I think they, they came to a deal to sell the McDonald's for an undisclosed sum to a Siberian franchisee who's going to run them under a new brand. Best of luck. Best of luck to you. It's, it's interesting. It, look how easy it is for these companies to pull right out. Yeah, it's hard to pull out of China. But that's exactly what has to happen in order for the U.S. to get better and for China uh, to start really feeling the shakes. I got to tell you, hearing Biden talk about how, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll go to war for Taiwan. Are, 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 you, are you sure? We're going to we, you You're now making this claim. You're, 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 you're putting the U.S. into it. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. Well, maybe that'll help shake up Taiwan a little. I mean, China. Keep it here. Just about a week or so ago, we did an interview with a guy I don't agree with politically from a left-leaning economic think tank, which to me was, uh, to an extent, uh, just a a weird thing to hear, that there are left-leaning tanks. But there's... There was a, a, a moment of, of real agreement and understanding that when it comes to baby formula, which is now landed 
at the airport in Indianapolis uh, just uh, over the weekend. Finally, we're going to be able to feed the children. There's agreement, and dear Lord, the monopoly power here is nuts. What we have done is flat-out dangerous in allowing just a couple of companies to have such insane control of baby formula in the United States. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. So good to be with you guys. Always a pleasure. And then I came across Jim Garrity, a guy I do agree with, for the most part, politically. We've got a couple disagreements here and there. Jim Garrity of National Review. What's behind the baby formula shortage is his one of his latest there. And it gets into this most unbelievable conversation of the of the criminality involved in how this, not only the process works, but how people have been engaged in, in baby formula for years. Jim Garrity joins us right now. And look, I don't know the extent to which you are paying attention to the baby formula insanity uh, from, from the word go and what you knew before this became a, a conversation publicly of, about shortage. Uh, but there seems to be a level of agreement amongst the political right and the political left that the system that we have for formula is a terrible, awful system where government has gotten in the way and not provided a result. Yeah, I, I think, I, Tony, I think that's a good summary. And I think that uh, where you'll find disagreements is that most folks on the right, but not all, would say, okay, well, you know, one of the ways you can increase competition is by opening up what is effectively a protectionist uh, set of scheme. By the way, if you come over from Europe and you have baby formula in your luggage, U.S. Customs and Border Protection will seize it as if it's, you know, heroin or, or you know, illegal guns. Is or that something right? Like that. Something, you know, really menacing and dangerous. And the argument is, well, look, there's two arguments. The first is that, well, that stuff they sell over there in Europe, it's not up to FDA standards, never mind the fact that the European equivalents of the FDA have not their own comparable standards and, in fact, in some cases are more strict than the FDA. The other argument is, well, sometimes the labels are in German and people won't know how to give the appropriate amount to their child or something like that. Uh, apparently, you know, American parents are children, too, and can't be allowed to make their own judgments about something like that. The whole idea that the European baby formula... Um, you know, I don't, you don't hear about European babies keeling over in some sort of terrible mass poisoning or something like that. The Europeans have their own safety standards. The Europeans have their own standards for nutritional value. Uh, you know, is it organic, stuff like that. So the idea that any parent who goes over there and decides to get it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they know what they're doing and should be trusted and, and all that stuff. The Europeans aren't going to let people sell dangerous baby formula. And this whole idea of, oh, we've got to keep that on safe European stuff, Allegedly, it's over public safety, but a lot of folks have argued this is really to protect domestic production, and uh, that's there. This, you alluded to a couple of months, a couple of moments ago. Um, long before this particular shortage, infant formula was one of the items most frequently stolen from retail stores. At least this is according to a survey of retailers conducted by the National Retail Federation. Um, and the idea is, you know, anything you, you look at retail stores, anything that's stolen, they have this acronym called CRAVED, right? Concealable removable, available, valuable, enjoyable, and disposable, right? Obviously, it's very tough to steal a large, bulky item. You can't slip it under your coat or something like that. You can't slip it into a, ba- a purse or a bag or something like that. Um, now, we, I, that list, I, can, I think we can debate enjoyable, but let's just say that, you know, 
parents of newborns always need this, which means there's always a consistent market for resale, whether it's on like eBay or online or something like that. So this has been a factor for a very long time. It's not the only reason that there's a shortage, but it is an exacerbating factor. And I think Abbott Laboratories probably is getting more than its share of criticism. If the recall had not occurred, we would still have had a problem. I think it was at like, you know, 10%, 20% empty shelves um, before the Abbott recall went through in, I want to say, you know, February, March or something. The Wall well, Street let me, let me hold you up right there on. for a second, Jim. Hold sure. on one second. Talking to Jim Garrity of National Review. It is interesting to hear this conversation about shortages that could have been coming and theft being involved with them because one of the things that the White House told us was that they've been working on this for months, making you believe that, okay, uh, getting into this idea that had been taking a long time and this is something they had been working on. Is there anything in your investigations and in your looking at this issue that shows that they were working on it at all, opening up other opportunities for manufacture, opening up other distribution channels and moving things around in these rather uh, uh, abusive contracts that, that groups like Abbott and others have uh, with states engaging levels of importation? Was anything done? if this had been going on for a while until the last really 30 days or less when America said, wait a second, this is a problem. If you, if you listen to White House officials, yes, absolutely. Now, Tony, I have heard the president say they'd have to be mind readers to see this problem coming along. Ah. Uh, another off-the-cuff comment from the president that is not only accurate, inaccurate, um, really terrible messaging and such. Now, they say they've been aware of it. I think what we're now seeing is part of this continuing pattern that most Americans are familiar with having, you know, just gotten through the COVID-19 pandemic of how long it took for the FDA to approve COVID tests, how long it took the FDA to approve the various vaccines, how long it took the FDA to approve various different age groups. Is it available for kids? Stuff like that. You know, how it handled internal dissent. The FDA just moves at the pace of the federal bureaucracy. It moves very slowly. It is about as risk averse an institution as you will find on the planet. And as a result of that, you know, when you need quicker decisions, it just can't move any faster. It, it just, there's no sense of urgency at this institution. And they automatically reject any argument about urgency as rushing them and not handling things safely or not. Well, unfortunately, human beings live life at a particular speed. And if the, you know, when you started seeing 10%, 20% of store shelves being empty for baby formula, that was the time to start, you know, like, oh, okay, what do we have going on here? What, what, you know, is it, do we actually need these sort of restrictions on imports? Like, do we have enough sources and stuff like that? The second thing is this Abbott laboratory shutdown. You know, the, they did find a form of the bacteria, not the same bacteria that was found in the second infants, in other non-production parts of their factory. So Abbott's saying, look, as far as no one can prove that those infant deaths were because of our for, infant formula, uh, this type of uh, Holman Jenkins had a fantastic column in the Wall Street Journal going into like the biology of this virus. And the short answer is, is that nobody's 100 percent certain that this is because of the Abbott Laboratories issue. But out of, of abundance of caution, they shut it down. They did the cleaning. They did all the check and all that stuff. And that shut it down for several weeks. That exacerbated this problem. But we still would have had this problem even if Abbott Laboratories hadn't had this issue at this plant. So now we see the flights coming in. I thought I thought this was the most spectacular bit of audio on the subject of these planes flying in, cargo planes, military planes with formula from Europe uh, in into my beloved Indianapolis. This is Brian Stelter. Listen to this. 
You saw those pictures in the corner of the screen a few moments ago. The first military flight carrying an emergency supply of baby formula has just landed near Indianapolis, Indiana. Baby formula flown in on a military plane. This is part of the Biden administration's Operation Fly formula as Americans are coping with a nationwide shortage. The pallets of baby formula were flown here from Germany. Uh, the staff, um, the master sergeant overseeing the shipment telling his staff, quote, we are literally saving babies. But this is both a failure as well as a success. The existence of this plane is a failure of the government and a failure of corporations as well, even though these pictures today are meant to symbolize a success by the Biden administration. That's Brian Stelter of CNN. Even though he's trying to couch it and blaming the corporations, the failure of the Biden administration, uh, I mean, that's just... That's as clear as day, and politically, as we enter into a general election season, um, people remember whether or not they're able to feed their kid, and if they don't have food for their kid in 30 days or less, they're really going to remember, Jim. Yeah. Someone over at Town Hall, I don't know if it was our mutual friend, Kurt Schlichter, but it seems like the sort of thing he would write, referred to this as the Berlin airlift in reverse. And isn't that just the (laughs) the kind of thought that we in the United States are dependent upon someone else. And you sit there and you think about it like, so, you know, okay, so a, first of all, this factory, I think the, it's very debatable, right? The second thing is if you're going to have a problem that shuts down a factory, how quickly can you get it you know, back up and running again and be assured that the formula that's coming out of that factory is going to be fine? Um, again, everything is just moving at the pace of bureaucracy. And it's, you know, it takes long. And the problem is that you, when you have this, you know, our pre-existing problems of supply chain issues, you have our pre-existing crime issues and stuff like that, you, you know, it's going to be it's like parents, this is not the sort of a product where if you have one, you, you can shift brands. Um, and I'm sure every, every parent in the country appreciated Bette Midler saying, just breastfeed more or something like that. Right. I mean, if that's an option for parents, that's great. But, there, you know, there are a whole bunch of families where the child won't latch on or they're not producing enough or the child's a finicky eater. There are all kinds of problems that, you know, make people dependent upon infant formula. And the solution is not to say that, well, you should have been wiser and been a better breastfeeder or something like that. Your solution is to say, all right, how many different sources can we get it from? And Europe is awash in this stuff. And it's, you know, by some standards, healthier than they are. But we can't have it over here because allegedly it's going to uh, uh, be uh, allegedly going to compete with U.S. stuff. Oh, by the way, I should point out my the excellent reporting of my colleague Dominique Pino, who points out large ch- about sixty percent of all infant formula in this country is bought by the WIC program, uh, supplemental nutritional program run by you know the HHS, and that's. Basically, when you have large government purchases making controlling an industry, it is not responsive to price points. You'd think the other producers would be like, oh, well, you know, Abbott's got a laboratory taken out. Huge demand there. There's a vacuum to be filled. We can rush in and fill that up. Uh, unfortunately, that we don't have that in this country because so much of the infant form, as you said, there's only three or four major producers, and almost all of what they, a huge chunk of what they purchase is purchased through government. Before I let you go, th- there I started with this this conversation I had had with someone from a leftist uh, economic tank, Matt Stoller, is who I had the conversation. Mm. He's an interesting guy. I'll give you an idea. He, he, right. Because he's not a down-the-line party man. He's a principled liberal 
which puts him, you know, means he's, when he thinks Democrats screw up, he's willing to say so. I'll give him credit for that. And it was it was it was an interesting uh, conversation. You know, we we have a different view on 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 the corporate world, but but neither here nor there about th- this monopoly conversation. And when you realize that Abbott and I forget the other company, they control about eighty plus percent of the baby formula world, and of course the the contracts with WIC, women, infants, children, uh, through this governmental uh, assistance uh, program uh, that lock states into certain uh, contracts. Does this? What we have seen, uh, uh, if, if you want to argue, I'm looking for the silver lining, sure. If you want to argue, never let a crisis go to waste, uh, all of a sudden I'm Rahm Emanuel, fine. But I'm making the argument that we need to have more uh, manufacturers and more people in this system. Has there been talk of this moment creating a, hey, we need to open this up to three or four other producers, please? Well, I think the first question is, if you wanted to make your own infant baby formula company, what would you have to do to, take, to start that up, right? The, you know, the, obviously, the, the cost to entry to this market are pretty considerable. Um, but you know, it's interesting. This is in light of something I was just writing about today in which Apple reportedly is now saying, you know what, maybe we don't have so much of our production capacity over in China because they've, been, you know, they've shut down Shanghai for the better part of two months and nobody's allowed to leave their apartments. Maybe China just isn't as safe a production spot as possible. We've had basically three or four decades of people saying, globalization, that is the future. We're going to have this stuff made all over the place. We're going to have all this stuff. We're going to have just-in-time shipping, and we're going to have this utterly interconnected world. Well, now, when we don't have protectionist trade policies that keep foreign stuff out, um, I think this question of Maybe it's better to have a whole bunch of, dis- of produ- produce, uh, production facilities, including a whole bunch here in the United States, so you don't have to suddenly deal with some other country's distant problem. And all of a sudden, you can produce this yourself if you want, uh, is, is going to gain traction. I think that a certain amount of foreign production, between because of COVID-19, because of supply chain issues, because of the backups, the ports, all these different issues, probably are making corporate America say, you know what? Maybe making it here isn't such a bad idea. Yeah, the labor's more expensive. Yeah, we've got to deal with, U- deal with U.S. regulations. But we don't have the problems of all of a sudden, you know, a foreign city can be shut down for two months or something like that. So I'd like to think we are, are seeing a, a rejuvenation of U.S. industry on this. Uh, I think if you, were, if you wanted to start a new U.S. infant baby formula manufacturer, I think you'd probably have a lot of investors right now. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest, Tony. I, I in that sense, I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't know how many hard lessons we learned from this utter ordeal for so many parents from coast to coast. Yeah, the, the, the idea of cost of getting into it, th- those levels of barriers to entry, I don't say aren't real. Uh, but as long as there are less governmental regulatory uh, barriers to entry, it could allow some people in. And clearly, I don't know how we haven't learned that we should have people in or at least not be so upset when parents make their own formula. Because that was the, I mean, just between you, me and the lamppost, we, we, we both have kids, and my kids are, are older. Um, the idea that you shouldn't make food for your kids was it, to to listen to that conversation flat out stunning and and to me so much of the problem of government dependence right like that was in a, in this weird nutshell like this is the problem that that we that is this is the root of of whether or not you believe government is the answer to the problem or government is the problem yeah oh by the way if you know if if just kind of taking us full circle if this retail theft problem was taken care of by the way it's not just it's not hungry parents who are shoplifting because they're so desperate. I mean, you probably can find one or two examples of that. But they mean it's like organized retail theft rings. These right. are the folks who steal 
$8,000 worth at a time, right? Or it falls off the back of a truck. Uh, they it store employees who smuggle it out. All kinds of stuff like that lead to large scale. So when, we talk, when I mentioned that earlier, I should point out, this is not, you know, one or two cans disappearing from a shelf. This is like crates and crates of the stuff that ends up being sold on eBay instead of being sold through traditional retailers the way it was supposed to. And, of course, obviously the thefts get reported. It goes up the line. It makes the cost go up higher. All of these factors, one, add to higher price of it and also make it scarcer to find. And I would bet, with so many people having a shortage of it, I would bet organized retail theft of this uh, of infant formula has probably increased in the last couple of weeks because people know there's such great demand for it that they probably can try to get it uh, much higher prices for it if they try to sell it on, you know, on the black market. Jim Garrity uh, from National Review. By the way, you can check out his books, Between Two Scorpions and Hunting Four Horsemen, at Amazon.com. Uh, Between Two Scorpions, check it out for yourself. Jim Garrity, NationalReview.com. I appreciate it. More on Tony Katz.